Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the London School of Economics for this public lecture hosted by the LSE European Institute. We're delighted to see so many young people in the audience. Of course, this is an event which is honoring the three-year anniversary of the 1989 Generation Initiative. My name is Michael Katakis. I'm the director of the 1989 Generation Initiative, and it's a great pleasure to see you all here. Now, the 1989 Generation Initiative would not have been possible were it not for our speaker this evening. Timothy Garton Ash will be well known to many of you here today. He is well known as one of the most creative, eclectic, and avant-garde thinkers in European politics and has been for the last two decades. Timothy has written 10 books on European politics and is a well-known academic professor uh, at Oxford University in European Studies and senior fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University. But Timothy is not only a great thinker, he is also a doer. He is, has been active in the civil society organizations of Eastern Europe during the years leading up to the fall of the Berlin Wall. And his efforts to bring down the Berlin Wall through uh, his activities and his collaborations with these organizations have earned him in 2016 the Charlemagne Prize for Services to European Integration. Timothy Garton Nash's name also holds special resonance for young people. In an article written in 2014 in The Guardian, Timothy called on the 89er generation, those born around the time of the fall of the Berlin Wall, who have known only peace and relative prosperity in Europe for much of their lives, to stand up and take a defining course in charting a new uh, vision and new politics for the European project at a time of great crisis. And students at the LSE European Institute, now some three years ago, rose up and decided to establish an organization which would attempt to bring to fruition the vision that Timothy laid out in his article. And thus, the 1989 Generation Initiative was born. It is today a pan-European organization of some seven chapters. It is organized events which have involved more than 5,000 young Europeans in debates over the future of European politics and the future of the European Union. And today it is its third anniversary, and we are absolutely delighted to make a very special announcement on this occasion. Originally a platform for dialogue between young people, the 1989 Generation Initiative is changing. It is being relaunched as the 89 Initiative, and intends to be the Euro Europe's first pan-European think-do tank. Now, what is a think-do tank? <laughs> a think-do tank goes beyond the remits of a normal think tank. It uses the broad discussions that already take place in the organization as the locus for the creation of ideas, startup ideas, project ideas, which can be turned into practical uh, action, practical initiatives designed to get at Europe's deepest, most intractable problems. And so, with the launch of the 89 Initiative, we're delighted also uh, to launch 89 Connect, our first of these projects, which is a pan-European online network, a sort of link LinkedIn with knobs on for young policy professionals. And that is also being launched today. So enough about that for now. Turning back to our event of this evening... Um, we are delighted to, to welcome Timothy, but we also have Kevin Featherstone here from the European Institute, uh, who will chair the question and answer session 
uh, after Timothy speaks for about 30 minutes on the future of European politics and, of course, the inevitable question of what's going to happen with Brexit. And so what I will do very briefly is run through a couple of logistical points before handing over to Timothy. I've been asked to inform you that the LSESU RAG, or Raising and Giving Society, is collecting outside the, the theater this evening. Uh, and so please give generously. They work with many charities across the UK and, indeed, internationally. So do give generously to them on your way out. And also, I must say that the hashtag, for those of you on Twitter, uh, for this um, evening's event uh, is hashtag LSE Europe. So, without further ado, please join me in warmly welcoming Professor Timothy Gartanash. Well, good evening, everybody, and thank you very much, Michael, for that introduction. I have to say that I don't think there's any column I have ever written which has had such a specific result. Writing newspaper columns is, I, I like to say, it's a bit like spitting into the wind on an ocean liner. Uh, half the time it comes straight back in your face. <laughs> if, if you're very lucky and the wind is behind you, then it can actually go quite a long way. But I don't think any column has had such a fantastic uh, result as this. And happy birthday, and it's a terrific initiative. And what I want to say is actually around the notion of 89ers. Um, for, do you have an official definition of an 89er, Michael? Well, I... <laughs> right. Okay. So this is... If some of you who know Fides in Hungary will know that they initially had a rule in their statute, which was, I think, a member had to be under 35. And as they got older, the definition of being a young Democrat <laughs> kept, uh, kept changing. But let's say for the sake of argument that an 89er is someone, because this was my original thought, which was the 68ers were the generation who were active in 68. They were actually born in the 1940s or early 50s. An 89er, let's say for the sake of argument, is someone born between, say, 1979 and, say, 1999-2000. So between... 19 and 40 today. So let's have a show of hands. Who on that definition is an 89er in this room? Hands up, please. Fantastic. I would say about 70% 89ers. So this is for you, and the rest of us are old 89ers, <laughs> the, the veterans. So what I want to talk about, I want to talk about Europe on three dates. 1989, 30 years on 2019, this year, the 30th anniversary, and 2049. And think about those three. So I'm going to start with an absolutely bold and bold proposition, which is I think 1989 was the best year in European history. So that's a challenge to you to come up with a better one. But it's pretty hard to think of a better year in European history. Remember what happened a nuclear-armed, post-totalitarian empire gave up one of the largest territorial land empires in European history with hardly a shot fired in anger, only in the Baltic states and in, inside the Soviet Union itself. But the external empire in Eastern Europe given up without a shot fired in anger. I have to tell you, for those of us who lived behind the Iron Curtain, this was like seeing the Alps 
suddenly collapse before your eyes. It was absolutely incredible. It's difficult to recover the sense of how permanent the Soviet Union and the division of Europe was. We thought the Iron Curtain would be there for decades to come. And if Gorbachev had decided differently, if he'd used the Red Army, there would still be a Berlin Wall. There would still be an East Germany. There would still be a Soviet bloc. There was nothing inevitable about it. Um, in dismantling that nuclear-armed empire, my friends in Eastern Europe, by trial and error, invented a new model of revolution. Call it Velvet Revolution. So for 200 years, since 1789, the idea of revolution had been inextricably associated with violence. I remember discussions in the Magic Lantern Theater in Prague in during the Velvet Revolution and people saying, we can't call this a revolution because a revolution is violent and we want to be nonviolent. But they invented a new model of revolution which was a rapid and fundamental change of political system but without violence. So that's some, another very big thing that happened in 1989. And as a result, we had the reunification, not just of Germany, but of Europe as a whole. Actually not reunification, but for the first time, one, one could say, because there has never been a Europe where most of the states in that Europe are sovereign liberal democracies, more or less. We'll come to the less in a moment. And they are in East and West, North and South Europe, in the same security, political, and economic communities. Right? Uh, if you think of interwar Europe, they were not all democracies, and they certainly weren't in the same uh, security, economic, and political communities. So Europe and freedom marched together. And as I wrote in an essay in the New York Review, if I had been chirogenically frozen in December 2004, I would have gone to my temporary rest a happy European. We just had the big eastern enlargement of the European Union. What had seemed incredibly difficult to transform post-totalitarian systems into some sort of liberal democracy had more or less been done. The joke in 1989 was about the challenge of transition. We know that you can turn an aquarium into fish soup, but can you turn fish soup back into an aquarium? And we sort of did it. It's a pretty odd kind of aquarium in many post-communist states, but we've done it. They had entered NATO, now they entered the EU. We were celebrating what was meant to be a European constitution, remember that. The Euro seemed to be doing incredibly well. And whether you were in Warsaw or Lisbon or Athens, there seemed to be a convergence between the peripheries of Europe and the historic core of Europe. There was tremendous optimism in all the periphery of, of what, what was then of, of the European Union. And let's add, in Ukraine, 
You had the Orange Revolution, the first Orange Revolution, 2004-2005. I was there, I will never forget, standing freezing on the Maidan and seeing a sea of European flags, along with Ukrainian and Polish and other flags. An explicitly pro-European revolution, a tribute to the soft power of the European Union. Great time to be cryogenically frozen. If I'd woken up 15 years later today, I'd probably have died immediately of a heart attack. Because now, wherever we look, there is crisis. Wherever we look. And my first question is, why? Why are we in such a state of all-round crisis? And the proposition I want to put to you, and this is connecting 89, 1989 to 2019, the triumph of 89 to the crisis of 2019, is that in many respects, what we are seeing are unintended consequences of 1989 and of decisions made in the aftermath of 89. So the first point is a very simple one. Historians should not be surprised that after years and even decades of liberal revolution, you have a kind of anti-liberal counter-revolution. That's what happens in history. You have a reformation, you have a counter-reformation. You have the French Revolution, you have the counter-revolution. When you get these big wave movements in history, you get big counter-movements. And I think that's a simple but, 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 but important point. Secondly, there's a bunch of reasons which are specific to decisions made by the EU in the aftermath of 1989 and, so to speak, flown with the spirit of triumph and optimism and, you might say, hubris post-1989. Um, enlargement, of course, which I regard as a great triumph of the European project, the Eastern enlargement, but, of course, one unintended consequence of that since freedom of movement is part of the four freedoms, is the very large movements of um, people from Central Eastern and Southeastern Europe into our own countries. And as we, all of you will know, that is one of the most significant causes of the Brexit vote. Now, we can go into that, the specific decision of Tony Blair, three countries alone, UK, Sweden and Ireland, had no restrictions on freedom of movement after 2004. But nonetheless, it's an unintended consequence of delivering on the promise of 1989 of a Europe whole and free. Secondly, the euro as we have it today. This is often contested by historians. Feel free to challenge me on it. I've spent a lot of time looking at the documents around German unification. I have no doubt that while the project of European Monetary Union was there almost fully formed in the summer of 1989. The Delors Committee had done its work. The specific commitment by Germany to a timetable for monetary union came in the month between the fall of the Berlin Wall, the 9th of November 1989, and the next big European Council in early December, and was, in effect, a quid pro quo for French and Italian, in particular, support for German unification. It's quite clear that François Mitterrand and Giulio Andriotti said, this is what we need from you, Cher Helmut Kohl. 
We need to embed German unification in the European project. And then Helmut Kohl said explicitly, you can see it in the diplomatic correspondence, okay, so if we're going to have a monetary union, we need a political union. What does that mean? That means a kind of fiscal union. And Mitterrand and Andriotti said, no, no, Charles Monetary union means we get control of your money, not that you get control of our budgets. Right? And so the basic design flaw was already there, present at the creation of the euro. And then because it was mainly a political project, not an economic one, everybody had to be in. So all the founding members had to be in. So Italy had to be in. And then if Italy is in, then why not Greece? And so you get this far too diverse group of economies, which clearly are too diverse for this ill-designed monetary union And the problems we have seen since are, of course, partly about the um, mistaken and short-sighted dictation of politics of austerity from Northern Europe and particularly from Germany to Southern Europe. But you can only understand that if you realize that the Germans didn't want monetary union in the first place. They were very attached to the Deutschmark. And so when they were, came into the monetary union, they came in reluctantly. And then at the end of this period, to be asked to pay an extra price for it, as it was seen, particularly since no one had told them that they were the biggest beneficiary of monetary union, um, partly explains the German psychology. Again, direct connection to 1989. Opportunity cost. In politics, you always have to look at opportunity cost. What was the big opportunity cost here? The European Union is only capable of doing one or two big projects at any one time. It chose to do enlargement and monetary union. Therefore, it did not have the energy, the political will, the bureaucratic time to build up what was the obvious and essential complement to enlargement, which was an external policy, a common foreign and security policy that would really be effective. And so we really missed out on that. And if you look at the migration crisis um, from the Middle East, well, one of the root causes of that is that Europe did not have a Middle Eastern policy any more than it had a China policy or a Russia policy. And therefore, faced with the opportunity of the Arab Spring, we completely blew it. Now, maybe we couldn't have done more about it, but we didn't even try And so I think that missed opportunity cost and connected with that is the fact of Schengen, the fact namely that in a way which seems now extraordinarily short-sighted, we demolished the internal frontiers in the Schengen area without thinking hard about the external frontier of the Schengen area. (laughs) Last but not least, in my short list of specific EU elements is the development in the European Parliament. Seeing what a democratic deficit, the answer, which is an entirely logical answer given, was we must strengthen the European Parliament. So having given democratic uh, direct elections, we must now give the European Parliament more powers in the European institutions, connect it more directly to the citizens, have Europe-wide parties, and then have... Spitzenkandidaten, Spitzenkandidaten, which gave us Jean-Claude Juncker and now giving us Manfred Weber as candidate for President of the European Commission. 
Now, this is an entirely logical answer, but I would maintain, and I'm happy to be challenged on this, that it simply hasn't had the intended effect. Objectively, it's not true that there's such a huge democratic deficit in the EU. Actually, the European Parliament has very significant powers and it is directly elected. But subjectively, subjectively, people don't feel that they're rarely represented by those very remote people in the European Parliament, which is a kind of bubble inside the Brussels bubble. Moreover, it's had the perverse effect of draining national capitals of the most knowledgeable, enthusiastic Europeans because they've gone to Brussels, right? You want, you're the great European. They, wherever the Europeans gone, they've gone to Europe. They've gone to Brussels. I can tell you, if you take 150 of the most knowledgeable and passionate Europeans out of Warsaw, out of Poland, and put them in Brussels in the European institutions, that radically depletes the number of good Europeans there are in the national parliament and the national institutions. Even in Germany, I would say, there's been that effect. And last but not least, these Europe-wide political parties, like the EPP, meant to be the great instrument of democratization, have had the perverse unintended effect that the EPP still keeps Viktor Orban's Fidesz party in that grouping, despite the fact that Viktor Orban has demolished liberal democracy in Hungary. And one of the main reasons the European Union has not done more about what's happening in Hungary is that Viktor Orban, unlike David Cameron, was smart enough to stay in the EPP. So what was intended to facilitate the democratization of the European Union has actually hampered the defense of democracy in its member states. Again, an unintended consequence. Um, but beyond that, beyond those reasons specific to the European Union, there's a set of generic reasons which are true of the crisis of liberalism of the liberal project more broadly. I'll be very brief on this because you're quite familiar with them. The fact that the particular version of economic liberalism chosen was something which can in shorthand be called neoliberalism. The particular financialized globalization of capitalism which came after 1989 has had consequences that all of you are familiar with a drastic growth in inequality, both vertically within our societies, between the very rich and the very poor, and horizontally, that is to say geographically, within our own countries, the poorer north of England against the massively rich London and southeast, Warsaw against the poorer southeast of Poland, West Germany against East Germany, you can do it in almost every European country. Between the north and south of Europe, particularly in the Eurozone, and between the west more broadly and Asia, right? So it's true that a lot of people have been lifted out of poverty by globalization, but those have been people in China and India, not 
the white working class in our own countries, by and large. So radical inequality, and in addition to that, what I call the inequality of respect. That is to say, to explain populism, it's not just an economic phenomenon, it's also a cultural phenomenon. What people who vote for populist movements are protesting about is not just economic inequality or stagnating real wages, it's a fact that they feel ignored and disrespected by urban, liberal, cosmopolitan and metropolitan elites like, dare we say, the kind of people who've been to the LSE or come to lectures at LSE or Oxford, right? And who now, unfortunately, you know, are typically calling for a people's vote in, in Britain. And this, too, is an unintended consequence of the kind of larger liberal project associated with 1989, because one of the things liberals were really keen on, me too, was to have more people coming into higher education, Right? 50% was the target, Tony Blair, New Labour. Unintended consequence, we've split our societies 50-50 between those who've gone to university, gone to live in cities, like open societies, like immigration, cosmopolitan, metropolitan, open, liberal, and those left behind in one way or another. The digital revolution, of course, the sense that Liberals cared much more about the other half of the world than they cared about the other half of our own societies. Um, and then, although these discontents can be found in the United States, they can be found in other places outside the European Union, they were perfect fodder for populist political entrepreneurs and blame it on the EU, because the EU does look so much like an elite, top-down, liberal, technocratic elite project. It's very vulnerable to the critique that it was, quote-unquote, a conspiracy of elites. As you know, many, many reasons fed into the Brexit vote. I hope we can talk about that in the discussion. I'm not going to talk about it much here. There are all sorts of specific English and British reasons but I would argue that the crucial factors which swung the Brexit vote were actually more these generic reasons um, which took the form of the Brexit vote. That is to say, they're not actually about causes that lie in the European Union, which is why leaving the European Union will be no cure for those problems, because it's not the cause of the problems in the first place. Um, but it took the form of the Brexit vote. Last but not least, among the problems that flow from 1989, 30 years later, is the problem of success. And this goes to what you were saying about the 89ers. And again, please contradict me if you disagree. And of course, this generalization is not true of people who grew up in Bosnia, for example, or who grew up in Ukraine. It's not true of all Europeans. But by and large... So here's the thing. If you look at the way the pro-European argument was made across the European continent from the 1940s right through to the 1990s, it had a similar basic form. The form of the argument was this. We have been in a bad place. 
we want to be in a better place, that place is called Europe. Now, Europe had no shortage of different bad places. So for the Germans, it was the guilt and shame of Nazism. For the French, it was the experience of defeat and occupation. For the Spanish, it was the legacy of a fascist dictatorship. For the British, it was relative political and economic decline. For the Poles, it was the experience of communist dictatorship and being cut off from Western Europe. Everyone had a different bad place. But the basic gestalt of the pro-European argument was the same. We've been in a bad place. We want to get to a better place. That place is Europe. And so you had generations of passionate Europeans for whom Europe was a target. The problem comes when you're there in it, when you've arrived. It's always better to travel, hopefully. Dreams are always better than reality, right? And now we have a generation of Europeans, maybe the 89ers, most of whom have grown up only knowing that Europe, which is relatively whole and free and where you can travel from one end of the continent and settle down and work and study and um, live. Um, What is worse, for some Europeans, if you're in Portugal, if you're in Greece for sure, if you're in Spain, you've actually known a Europe that was better 15 years ago, that looked much more hopeful in Lisbon or Madrid, let alone in Athens, 15 years ago than it does now. So the shape of the curve is the opposite. Instead of being a curve like that, it's a curve going down. How do you make the case for Europe then? Not in the old way of saying there's this shining horizon called Europe. You've got to find a new way of making the case. I actually think, and here I come to the last part of what I want to say, which is about 2049 and the next 30 years and what you do about it. Pro-Europeans are often caricatured as being Dr. Pangloss, as being naive liberal optimists. Actually, the naive liberal optimists are the Brexiteers, right? Because they believe that we can go off on our own and be bloody-minded And the rest of Europe will happily carry on being cooperative, integrative, giving us a really good deal, and so on, right? So it's parasitic upon others behaving differently from ourselves. The reality is that at the drop of a hat, Europe can at any point fall back into its bad old ways, as it has done throughout its history. And the periods of peace and cooperation are always fragile and are the exception rather than the rule, right? Anyone who knows the story of former Yugoslavia knows that that is true. Anyone who knows what's happened to Ukraine knows that that is true. Anyone who's been in Greece knows that that is true. We say never again. Never again should people be burned because of their color or ethnicity. People have been burned in asylum hostels in Germany and elsewhere because of the color of the skin and where they came from. People are drowning in the Mediterranean because of European policies. So actually the strongest case for the European Union, my view, is precisely the opposite. Not a Panglossian optimistic one, 
but a sternly realistic one, that it requires all these structures and efforts of cooperation to prevent Europe falling back into its bad old ways, which it's liable to do at the drop of a hat. So finally, let me come to the 89ers, Europe 2049. You will be aged between 50 and 70, but you'll still be around, unlike me and possibly Kevin. Kevin may still be around. <laughs> um, first thing to say, um, I think you have to prepare for a generational struggle. If it is right that we've had one big wave movement in the direction of, so to speak, liberal revolution in crude shorthand, and that the counter-movements are quite big wave-like movements, it seems likely to go on for some time now. Don't believe for a moment we've somehow already reached peak populism or peak nationalism. I just don't believe it. So I think it's a generational struggle. Secondly, I think there's a bunch of things that you have to think about that are specific to the EU, a bunch of things that are generic, transnational. Again, this connects to my analysis of the causes. And then a bunch of things which are about the particular place you're in. Very, very briefly, just telegram-style headings, and then we can talk about them. The euro problem has not been solved. Look at Italy. Germany and other North European powers have done just enough to prevent the euro collapsing, but not enough to make it work well for all those who are in it. That problem has to be addressed if the European Union is going to flourish and retain support in southern Europe, and that requires a change from Germany. Secondly, what's happened with Hungary is an utter scandal. Jean Monnet said somewhere, dictatorships can exist, but a dictatorship cannot exist in the European community. That is impossible, said Jean Monnet. Well, I won't say Hungary is actually a dictatorship, but it's certainly not a liberal democracy. I'd say it's a hybrid authoritarian regime, and it's a member state of the European Union. Its governing party is a member of the EPP, whose Spitzenkandidat is meant to be the next president of the European Commission, and it goes on receiving, uh, I think second only to Greece, the largest sums in EU transfers per capita of any member state. So that I like to say that Viktor Orban it practices what Boris Johnson could only preach. Boris Johnson said, I want to have my cake and eat it. The guy who actually, so the result is Britain is going to neither have its cake nor eat it as a result of Brexit. Viktor Orban has his cake and eats it. He gets these enormous European Union subsidies, which he uses for vanity projects and, by the way, to buy the support of his oligarchs and business community who then own the media, who are key to his support in the country, and he does that with EU money. So he bites the hand that feeds it and goes on being fed. We have to do something about reconnecting the Europe of values and the Europe of money. We have to develop an external policy. The biggest geopolitical challenge of the next 30 years is clearly the rise of China. Russia is a big challenge right now. At the moment, both Russia and China are dividing and ruling. 
we have to do something more about European democracy. We have to make the European Union an effective actor in response to climate change. The European Union is one of the few public authorities in the world capable of taking on Facebook and Google. We have to do something about those inequalities I talked about, the inequality of income and wealth and the inequality of respect. So in the British context, if we're thinking about Brexit, one might say tough on Brexit and tough on the causes of Brexit. So one of the challenges for the People's Vote campaign, if we get there, and we'll talk about that, is that you've got to say, no, this is not ignoring the Brexit, the vote for Brexit. This is actually taking seriously the vote for Brexit, vote for Brexit and trying to address the real causes of the Brexit vote, uh, which didn't lie for the most part in the European Union. But apart from all of that, I think there are two crucial points for the 89ers, and, and with this I'll finish and then go into the conversation. Number one, every successful political community has a story that it tells, a narrative. The United States is perhaps the best example of a country which for more than two centuries has had this amazingly powerful and appealing story about what kind of country it is. The truth, of course, is a very different matter. This is why Ernest Renan said that historians are a great danger to the life of the nation because they subvert the myths by which nations live. But nonetheless, <laughs> we need a strong story. And at the moment, Europe has lost the plot. It doesn't have a story, we, 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 a story to tell. So I have actually just started a big project at Oxford um, on Europe's stories, trying to discover what the new stories might be that we would want to tell. And I'd love to hear your views on that, because what's clear is that the old stories, the stories that fed that basic narrative I was talking about, from the bad places to Europe, um, it no longer has the traction that it had, except in candidate countries and in countries just around the edges of the European Union. So where Europe really has traction is in Ukraine or in Serbia or to some extent even in countries of the Maghreb, the countries just next door. So that's the first point. The second point is, I can't emphasize this too strongly, Europeanism begins at home. One of the problems of the European project is, as I said before, that all the Europeans have gone to Europe, right? So it's easy and lovely to be a good young 89er pro-European and spend your life going off to Brussels or Prague or Paris or Berlin and meeting like-minded people, <coughs> open-minded, liberal, pro-European, right? The challenge is to go to Sunderland or Darlington or Bautzen or Lille or Zeshov, if any of you have heard of Zeshov. That's to say to go to the left-behind, ignored parts of our countries and make the case for Europe there to make the case for Europe in our own countries, 
in the neglected parts of our own countries, in our own languages, in our own idioms, what British politicians have spectacularly failed to do for the last half century, which is again a cause of a Brexit. And that, to come back to 1989 for a moment, they weren't making the case for Europe in Brussels or Strasbourg. They were making the case for Europe passionately on the streets of Warsaw and Prague and Budapest and East Berlin. And that's why 89 was such a great moment, because it was Europeanism in your own country. So that, for me, is the other great challenge for you, the 89ers, and actually for us, for us who want the, want the people's vote in this country, um, is actually to speak to the other half of, of our society, those who feel left behind and, and neglected by the, European, by the European project. That brings me neatly to Brexit, and so with that, I think I'll say thank you very much, and I look forward to the conversation. Thank you, Timothy, very much indeed. I think we've had a magnificent overview and a number of uh, themes have been uh, covered and integrated very well. My job is to ask you questions and to uh, possibly uh, take the argument uh, a little bit further. I wonder, if we think back, as you were suggesting, uh, in the early years of European integration, we had certain dominant narratives and as you said, uh, there's a sense that uh, Europe was going to deliver success for us. Rather than a sense that the success is no longer available, I wonder whether the, the key change was actually that Europe went too far, a goal too far. If we think in terms of the problems of the euro, single currency, or today's problems with migration, then the common theme seems to be uh, the challenges of getting member states to agree burden sharing. You mentioned in terms of uh, the lead up to the uh, creation of the single European currency, Maastricht, uh, German attitudes towards uh, the construction, the governance of the euro. I think we've probably looked at some of the, the same papers. But certainly what struck me at the time in 1989, uh, you're, you're right, the, the European Council in Essen was, was crucial. But I simply challenge you on your interpretation uh, by saying that it never struck me that German actually, Germany actually wanted economic union. And indeed that it was fundamentally uh, approaching these matters in a mental frame of auto-liberalism rather than neoliberalism. And that had consequences for burden sharing. Auto-liberalism uh, has its basic premise that you sort your own uh, problems out. Fiscal discipline uh, is essentially the first task of a national government. And indeed, if we contradict that, German voters may be asked to bail out other countries, and we don't wish to do that. Similarly, with burden sharing, we've seen the recent controversies in terms of uh, blockages to migration flows and European countries, particularly in Central Europe, objecting to the idea that Europe, Brussels, should be able to allocate numbers of migrants uh, to be settled. Uh, so 
rather than perhaps other factors at play, I wonder whether it is something about the European projects that it was actually going too far. A single market, fine. Customs union, fine. Some adornments of the European Parliament and uh, political uh, ideals, fine. But when you get down to the, um, some of the crucial issues of identity and who we are willing to pay for, uh, burden sharing became just simply that stage too far for European integration. Yes. So, I, I mean, I think that's right, and I think that was implicit of some of what I said. I mean, I think there is a phenomenon of liberal overreach mm. altogether, right? So the, the speed and radicalism of financialized <laughs> globalization. Mm. So I campaigned for Remain in the, in the, in the referendum campaign in, in 2016 here. Uh, it wasn't that people were necessarily xenophobic. It, it was just the sense that there's just too much change, too fast, too many people coming in. The same in, in Eastern Europe. It's too much. Uh, we can't take so much change. So it was something about the pace uh, of, of globalization rather than the direction. In the specifically European case, I absolutely think that with hindsight, with benefit of hindsight, although I, I can say that I warned against this at the time, but that's rather irritating, so I won't say that. Um, <laughs> maybe I just did, um, is that the monetary union in the form that it was adopted, at the time it was adopted, was a bridge too far. Mm. It would not have been overreach if it had been really carefully prepared economically, if you'd had a fiscal union, if you'd been sure that the economies were convergent, um, but that none of that was done because it was the political project par excellence as the response to the end of the Cold War, to this dramatic development. And this takes me to Germany, which is, of course, you know, I mean, I, you know, again and again, and the question of European history comes back to the question of Germany in some ways. Um, and, and, and in this case, it wasn't that Helmut Kohl was ordo-liberal. It was that Helmut Kohl and by the way, Wolfgang Schäuble, too, was fundamentally contemptuous of economics. And I mean, I've talked to Cole about this mm. and, and studied him closely. He believed in political will. Mm. The other Helmut, Helmut Schmidt, would never have done the one-to-one -one exchange of the Deutschmark to the East German mark, which, of course, in economics terms, was absolutely crazy and disastrous. But because Cole believed in the primacy of politics and didn't give a damn at the the economics will follow, he just did it quite rightly, right? And it was the same with the euro. It wasn't because he had an auto-liberal approach. It was because he just thought, we really want to go for a political union of Europe. And if Europe had, 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 had actually gone that way, if it had followed down that path to a political union, the euro would be working better. Right? So, so, so I think there's something specific to Germany. And then what happens is the successors to coal come along. We didn't want the bloody thing anyway. We no longer have the European idealism of the Helmut Kohl generation. Um, nobody has told us that we are the greatest beneficiaries of monetary union, because no German politician had the courage to tell you that. And there is this stifling 
in Gramscian terms, intellectual hegemony of auto-liberal economics. <coughs> and up against all of that, plus the Bundesbank and the Bundesverfassungsgericht, you know, it's, it's a tough struggle. Okay. So if the design of the euro was uh, failed to take account of the problems of divergence as opposed to convergence between disparate member states, uh, then I wonder whether um, the, European, the European construction uh, more generally has uh, gone too fast in terms of enlargement. In other words, uh, was 2004 the enlargement thereof too early? Your logic is to say that a single currency was premature or ill-suited to such a divergent set of systems. Given the comments you were making about the liberal turn in Central Europe, couldn't we say that enlargement was too soon because it ran the risk of an illiberal turn? Touché. <laughs> um, you have me there. Um, I would disagree to this extent that I think those countries, certainly in East Central Europe, had actually met the Copenhagen criteria. Yes. And those 15 years were a pretty rigorous and punishing uh, period of radical transformation. Uh, and, 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 and the illiberal turn is to some extent a kind of reaction after that because so much had to change so fast. And people didn't say, why do we have to introduce this European law? Um, why is it good for our country? They just said, we have to do it because we want to be part of Europe. Yes. So it was a purely yes. instrumental justification. So there were problems in the way the pro-European case was made. I do have to say that I think by the time you come to Bulgaria or Romania or Croatia, I think there was a weakening of the Copenhagen criteria, which is problematic. But even more problematic is the fact that we have incredibly rigorous um, uh, rigorous criteria and mechanisms of supervision up to and until the moment when you join and then once you're in you can metaphorically speaking get away with murder we have no internal yes. mechanism of discipline so yes. I think it's a problem in the nature of the European construction the complete disjuncture between the Europe of values and the Europe of value, which I, of money, which I talked about, which is more the problem than, than it just being too soon. I agree entirely with that. Um, but I wonder whether, again, this is um, an elusive um, goal. That is that, um, as we've seen with the Greek crisis, uh, Europe faces problematic uh, domestic institutions, uh, what is the solution? Uh, Brussels uh, should somehow um, offer support, intervene uh, to overcome problematic public institutions, public administration, whether in Athens or Hungary or, or Poland, wherever. In other words, there's plenty of reports uh, about uh, the difficulty of uh, Europe dealing with uh, domestic institutions, government machines, 
which simply are not respecting the Europe of values and can't actually, actually deliver the public goods. So what is the answer? The answer, presumably, was that it would be a deeper democratization or deeper federalization such that the center can intervene uh, when Poland and Hungary have an illiberal turn, when Greece and other countries uh, have uh, public institutions that can't deliver uh, the necessary um, obligations of EU membership. But that presupposes uh, perhaps the ultimate bridge too far. That is that uh, we give to Europe a federal, a very, very strong uh, federal power uh, from the centre to respond to uh, problems of divergence, weak institutions, corruption, uh, encroachment on judiciary, and all the rest of it. That surely is, um, going back to your language, a wonderful dream, but sometimes uh, it seems to be a bit too far, isn't it? So, firstly, let me give you my counterfactual um, solution for all European problems which is uh, just imagine a Europe in which we had no monetary union but just a much tighter exchange rate mechanism in which we went back to the old Strasbourg Assembly of uh, uh, representatives of national parliaments rather than a directly elected European parliament but in which we had closer foreign policy, external policy cooperation mainly of an intergovernmental kind but with a kind of external action service to, 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 to service support strengthen the coalitions of the willing. Just make that thought experiment for a moment. Would Europe be in a better or worse place? Right? I, I put it out there. Arguably, Europe would be a better place if we hadn't had that overreach over the last 30 years. But we are where we are. We can't be the Irishman at the crossroads. If I were you, I wouldn't start from here. We are where we are. Um, a friend of mine who's a psychologist had a T-shirt made which read, life is not lived in the subjunctive. <laughs> and I like that. Life is not lived in the subjunctive. Politics has to start from where we are. So we have to try and make this bloody thing work. Mm. And, and for me, the way to do that is not to reach for some normatively perfect federal model um, of direct democracy. I don't think... I think it's to try and fix the real problems that are really turning people against Europe in the member states. Mm. So on the euro, let's forget about sort of theoretical considerations. We need a more expansionary policy from Germany. Germany needs to allow a bit more inflation, shock horror, the increase in real wages, and to be a bit more relaxed and flexible about that. that that's a specific mm. thing that needs to be done. The EU needs to deliver in certain areas where it's not delivering as well as it, has at, as it is at the moment. An evolutionary, if you like, Fabian development of the European Union would be, would, would, would be my answer to that, and actually not any more grand projet, because I think that the, the teleological way of thinking about the European project, where we always have to be moving forward to some golden horizon of ever closer union, is now one of the problems of the Europe. There is now a way of making 
a small-c conservative argument for the European Union, which says the Europe we actually have is pretty bloody amazing. We've never had a Europe like that. Just to hang on to it for the next 30 years would be an amazing <laughs> achievement. I, I remember sitting at lunch with a, a French friend of mine who was a brilliant French scholar. Some of you may have known his work called Pierre Asnard. Uh, brilliant. Raymond Aron's pupil died recently. And we were sitting at lunch in Oxford, and he said to me, he said, you know, Timothy, I think, I think you're right. I think Europe will not come to pass, he said. I said, Pierre, you're in it. <laughs> right? And it was a perfect sort of French-English dialogue, right? The sort of Cartesian teleological notion, Europe will not come to pass. We have it here. We just have to hang on to it and improve it. Before opening up uh, to the audience, I must uh, try to link this with Brexit, uh, which you've signaled in your uh, presentation. Um, a new narrative, a narrative uh, post-Brexit. Um, much of the conversation uh, is concerned with uh, how we could bring the UK society back together again. I think, uh, like you, uh, I would favor a second referendum, and I would have favored, still favor, uh, remain. But the challenge we have is 52-48, and either we end up with the outcome in which one side wins in a very binary fashion, it's win-lose, or we try to find some kind of uh, midpoint, which is the more... Uh, effective way of healing society? So it's a genuinely difficult problem because there is no good way out of the best we're in. There's mm. just, let's be clear about that, there's no good way out of it. There are just bad and worse ways. And, and, and my view is that, 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 that is this, that, that a second referendum at the end of a real national debate with citizens' assemblies and a genuine, genuine attempt to engage with the real concerns of Brexit voters over a longer period of time is the least worst way forward. The least worst way forward. Of course, with the hope that we would vote to remain, although I have to say that if it again went for leave... I think in terms of national unity, we would be in a better place than we are now. Because my side of the argument could no longer say, forgive them for they know not what they do, they didn't know what they were voting for, any of that, all the lines you hear from us again and again. Because we'd had this bloody great debate, we'd been talking about nothing else, people would have known what they were voting for. Mm. And so actually we would then have to, however reluctantly, accept the result. But it's a difficult one, and for me, it's this. It's a, it's a balancing act between the long term and the short term. Even with this national debate and citizens' assemblies and genuinely engaging and trying to address the causes of Brexit, I accept that a lot of people are going to be very angry and they will be divisive. I'm not going to be blackmailed by the threat of violence. I'm not going to be blackmailed by Theresa May saying it threatens social cohesion or people saying it's going to be a civil war. I don't believe that. British or not. As the one thing Nigel Farage said that I agree with, one thing, is that 
we're not French, he said. <laughs> so, on that, I agree. We're not, we're not getting the gilets jaunes. We, 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 we can have this argument. But even having done all of that, there would be a lot of people who would feel, and there's a genuine democratic problem. I'm not going to... You know, it's a nice argument where Sarah Wollaston says, imagine you'd agree to have an operation two and a half years ago, and you're just being wheeled into the surgery, and you realize that the operation is much more risky and much more complicated than you'd thought. But they say, no, 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 you signed the consent form two and a half years ago. It's a very nice argument. I may use it myself. But if we're honest, a vote in a referendum is not quite like just the consent form for the operation. So there's a serious problem there. But what you have to weigh against that is the long-term cost for Britain and for Europe over decades of Brexit. And in my view, this will be the most consequential and gratuitous act of national self-harm in our modern history. And the consequences will play out not just over years, but over generations, and they will be much more serious than many people are anticipating, also for Europe, also for Europe. And our European partners are underestimating the consequences as well, because Britain is not going to sit happily in some outer circle of the European Union like Norway, feeling in completely comfortable by that. We're not going to be like that. Number one, it's very unpleasant being one against 27. You mentioned candidate countries. I'll tell you, we're like Serbia if we leave, only slightly worse. So every candidate country knows that it's very tough negotiating with the EU27 because every existing member state puts its particular concern on the table, and there's always more solidarity between the 27 than there is for the one. We've already seen that. So we'll be like a candidate country, like Serbia, except that in the case of a candidate country, there's basic goodwill on both sides, right? There's hope in the candidate country and there's hope in the EU. In this case, there won't be goodwill, there'll be ill will. There'll be all the rancor of a long, bad marriage. So it'll be really tough. And the British reaction to that, and particularly the English reaction to that, will not be just to say sorry, but we're going to come back with our tails between our legs and become rejoiners. Anyone who thinks that doesn't know British and the English history, it's not going to be like that. The Brexiteers will blame it on the bloody French and the Belgians and the Europeans. And that argument, so will the Eurosceptic press, the Daily Mail. And that argument will have real traction. And there will be a dynamic of divergence, not of convergence, between a post-Brexit Britain and, uh, and, and the EU. So I think the long-term consequences for both Britain and Europe will be very, very serious. And so actually I think it's a calculus long-term risk against short-term risk long-term benefit against short-term. That's great. I knew I was the wrong person to chair this because I agree with um, Timothy Garton-Ash's columns in The Guardian uh, on a regular basis. So let's open it up. It's a 1989 generation. Let's, uh, if we can take, say, three at the yeah, time. Uh, could we take the uh, lady uh, here um, halfway up? If you could um, just say who you are. Uh, I'm a member of the public. My name's Susan. Um, I, I, um, 
At the risk of being horribly teleological, um, it's interesting that you pick 2049 because that's the point at which the Chinese government will be celebrating 100 years of the Communist Revolution. Yeah, good point. And their goal for that period is to eliminate poverty in China. They also have a project to spend $1 trillion on climate change and $1 trillion in Africa. And I would say in order to capture the mentality of the current generation, the 2019 generation of Europeans, that those two projects might be worth looking at for the European polity because these are much, much bigger problems than uh, you know, Brexit. And, and climate change brings in its wake, and some people already say it is bringing in its wake, the issue of refugees and migrants. And we're already seeing the effects of that in Europe and this horrible shift back towards fascism. Um, and I think the, the EU really needs to pull its finger out. I understand that even if we leave the EU, we're going to be part of the uh, pan-European energy project. And I think energy and refugees are absolutely central. Could okay. you speak to that? in a te teleology, teleological way. Okay, thanks. A colleague uh, almost at the end of the, um, the row in the centre. Keep going back. Um, the colleague here with, with the hand up. Uh, thank you, Professor. Um, my name is Jiaming. I come from China. And I was in Kosovo like roughly three weeks ago. And my question is that, I mean, to my surprise, uh, people in Kosovo have really <coughs> optimistic attitudes towards the future. I mean, compared with the surrounding country like Bosnia, Serbia, and Albania. And my, que my question is, uh, as the poorest country in terms of the GDP per capita in former Yugoslavic country, why, what makes people in Kosovo are so optimistic towards the future. And my second question is, uh, what are the specific um, obstacles for the Western Balkan country to become the member of European Union? Thank you. Okay, good, thanks. And then uh, this person just directly next to you now. Oh, yes. Hello. Uh, Sarah Ludford, I speak on uh, Brexit for the Lib Dems in the House of Lords. And um, I, I was also an MEP for 15 years. So uh, my, 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 my remark is about the European Parliament. Um, I, I mean, I'm not saying it's a perfect institution, but I do think it would be absolutely wrong to think of going back to the 1970s with sort of uh, indirect members. I mean, first of all, it's a very different workload. And, I mean, having part-time people coming from Westminster and other national parliaments to be the European <coughs> Parliament simply wouldn't work. And I don't... I mean, you know, there are things that need fixing the European Parliament. I think you need a directly elected body to, 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 to talk on a, on a European level with the other, other institutions. And I don't think you can lump it in with the sort of more Europe of Giefer Hofstadt and, and co, with, on, with whom I'm not perfectly aligned, although he's my former group leader, uh, because, uh, you know, I, I, I agree with you that we, we have to sort of try and get Europe doing things better with the, with the institutions we largely have now. Okay, thanks. Gosh, and then uh, the lady almost at the front. I've been reading your articles in all kinds of places, and I've always wanted you to appear more on the broadcast media. I've wondered why that doesn't happen. Um, <laughs> and the other thing I want to ask you for advice 
uh, what, what, what you would suggest. Um, when you're talking about having assemblies and so on, and if we were to get a people's vote, another referendum, which I now think may not happen, but I would love it to happen, how would you persuade those people who've dug their heels in and said, we're, you know, we want out, we don't care what anyone says, we don't want them telling us what to do, all the things that the... That the um, the, the people you're talking about, the people who feel so aggrieved and have right to feel aggrieved, as you say, how would you persuade them to listen to the elite who are going to give them this information? Obviously, if you're going to have informed um, assemblies, you've got to provide them with information okay. to correct them. How would you persuade them to listen to the people okay. whom they... They disrespect and they are very resentful of. Thank you for that. I'm going to invite Timothy to try to give brief answers so we might squeeze in one final round. Oh, definitely. Okay, I'll be as quick as I can. China, hmm. as a challenge that it is, is also uh, in an odd way a consequence of 1989 because the Chinese Communist Party <coughs> learned its lesson from the collapse of the Soviet Union um, and said, we're going to avoid that, we're going to have economic modernization, but keep political control. And the result is something we never dreamed of in 1989, which I call Leninist capitalism. And Leninist capitalism is incredibly dynamic at the moment, but it's also fragile. It has its own challenges. And that's not good news, for, because dealing with an emerging superpower, which is internally stressed, as was Wilhelmine Germany, is very difficult and very challenging because the temptation for Xi Jinping is already there is to go to diversionary nationalism, uh, to try and divert people who are unhappy with the way the system delivers. So I completely agree that in order to deal with the challenge of an emerging but also fragile China and climate change, we need the scale that only the EU gives. Kosovo... Um, George Orwell said somewhere, from inside everything looks worse, which I think is pretty close to a universal truth, except, of course, the LSE, which I'm sure is <laughs> better than that. <laughs> but certainly true of the EU. So the EU, if you want to love the EU, go to a country just outside it, which is looking forward to joining. And that helps to explain Kosovo, plus the fact if you're a country just outside who's been under the knuckle of another big country for a long time, mm. then it's particularly attractive. Think of Ireland. Um, European Parliament, Sarah, I mean, look, you will have appreciated that was a jeu d'esprit. I'm not seriously proposing to dissolve the European Parliament. But what I would love to hear from you and others who've been there is what the reforms you think it really needs. Because I'm not persuaded that the big Europe-wide parties like the EPP and Spitzenkandidaten, and I'm not sure that's delivering on what we actually need. So the question is, you know, what would make it work better? Um, thank you for your nice comments about my columns. Um, you must ask the BBC and ITV. Um, I have no idea why they don't ask me. Um, 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 one partial, possible explanation, and I think this is a serious point, is that Britain's European debate, as reflected in the British media, is not really about Europe. Mm. It's really about us. 
And so the classic Europe story on the BBC or ITV is a ding-dong between a, Euros- a Brexiteer and a Remainer, right? Between a Eurosceptic and Europhile. And it's about British politics. It's this binary ding-dong and not actually about what's going on in the real Europe out there. So that's one of the challenges to us is to remind people about, except when it comes to football. Or golf, when even readers of the Daily Telegraph know everything about Europe and love it, actually, or going on holiday. Um, Just finally, in terms of going to the Leave voters, I mean, first of all, we obviously have to accept that there's a a part of the electorate which is unpersuadable, and it's going to be the swing voters. I think we would need to make a very granular campaign which when we go to Sunderland or North Wales or Darlington or wherever it may be, says quite specifically, Europe helped to build that bypass or helped to clean that beach. And if we leave the European Union, that factory is going to close down. I think that's the way to make the argument, not in broad general terms about how wonderful Europe is or Britain in Europe, but quite granular and, 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 and specific. Okay, let's have a quick uh, round. Can we take uh, Rock here? Rokhduin uh, Tomsevich, LSE European student. I have two questions. First, do you think that whatever happens to Brexit, uh, will this be a renaissance of the European spirit in terms of the people who want to achieve more integration, uh, whatever it is. Uh, the least recent Eurobarometer says that support for integration or membership in the EU is at its highest level since 1983. Or on the other hand, could it be more of a realist appreciation of Europe? Even the most Eurosceptic governments know okay. that they're dependent on structural funds or geopolitically uh, have a lot to lose. And the second question is uh, personal, and I know you're a keen observer of Polish politics, and I would like to know your views on the Polish conundrum, meaning uh, the most pro-European population in Europe and the government as, as it stands right now. And uh, is, is the European dimension uh, something that can save Polish democracy? Thanks. Um, I'm sorry, there's so many people. Could you take the gentleman halfway up on the end of the row? With Britain out of the um, uh, out of the EU, what, what prospects for um, European common foreign policy? Good, thank you. And then, uh, could we take the lady here, please? If there was to be a second referendum, what would be the question? <laughs> <laughs> the nice, simple uh, questions. And uh, could we take uh, the gentleman kind of halfway up in the black uh, jacket? Thanks, Professor Ash. I wonder if you can discuss a bit about what the languages, especially the, you know, the dominance of English languages, monolingualism, and the education of European languages, or the lack of it, plays in all of this. And one little idea, I think for better or for worse, China at least has Confucius Institute. Perhaps the EU needs something similar. <laughs> the LSE has a Confucius uh, Institute. We are where we are. Um, uh, can we take the lady here, please? Final question. Uh, thank you. I'm Claudia. I'm an international student studying Westminster about international development. And from outsider of the whole Brexit, I'm either a foreigner, I'm, and I read the newspaper. It turns out uh, 
uh, Britain is not going to leave the EU. Britain is going to leave the control of America because look at the slogan of take back control. But from who? So I'm very uh, and uh, all the newspaper actually at the very beginning, when I read the newspaper, it's very shocking because the first page always about the rumor about Trump. It's not the real stuff here, uh, things happen here, but it's something across the pond in America. So I want to ask about the break exit. Okay. The real purpose of this is to take back control from control by someone else. Thank you. Okay. Many thanks. I'm sorry, there were many questions, but I think we already have about six or seven there, and we're asking Timothy to uh, go from, um, would the EU27 be better without us anyway, uh, to a question on Poland, uh, can Europe uh, solve Poland? So I don't think Brexit can save the EU. I don't think the EU can save Poland. Poland, and I don't think Trump can save the EU. Brilliant. <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a start of my answer, right? Uh, don't look for, for saviors from, from, from outside. I, it's absolutely right that Brexit has concentrated minds, and instead of Euroscepticism increasing, and a domino effect has been the opposite. Uh, support for the EU has soared, and, and also who would have thought that you would have 700,000 people in the centre of London waving European flags and, and demonstrating for Europe? So you will know the most famous line in Polish poetry, which is, Lithuania, thou art like health. How much we should value you, they alone know who have lost you. Litwo ty jesteś jak zdrowie. Well, Europe, you are like health. How much we should value you, they alone know who have lost you. So there is that effect, but I, I wouldn't rely too much on it. Secondly, um, uh, uh, on the, 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 the complex of Brexit questions, I strongly object to the beginning of the question which says, with Britain out of the EU, just as I rather object to the generation Brexit label, because I think it should be generation anti-Brexit because we're not yet out of the EU. The game is not yet up. It's not all going to be over on the 29th of March, so I think we should keep on fighting. If Britain did leave the EU, I think the problems for foreign and security policy would be much more serious than most people are anticipating. So the French have their own version of cakeism, which is we're going to build the European Union with Germany and a few others, and we're going to go on doing foreign and security policy with the other serious military power, which is the Brits. So we're going to have our cake and eat it. It's not going to work like that. Do not tell me that the military and security cooperation between Britain and the EU can be unaffected by a bad relationship on the economic front. I don't, that's not how politics works. So I think the damage will be very significant in that respect. Um, on Trump, your very interesting question. The one, you know the Brexiteers always talk about sovereignty? The only consistent advocate of British sovereignty in the post-war history of Britain was a man called Enoch Powell. Because Enoch Powell wanted us to leave both the European community and NATO. Because you're absolutely right, the commitment we make in Article 5 of the NATO Treaty which is the three musketeers commitment, one for all and all for one, we'll come to the defense of any other member of NATO, is as much of a restriction of our sovereignty, seen in theoretical terms, as anything we've committed to in the EU. 
that Britain isn't like that because we think the United States is different. What Brexit will change in the relation to the United States is that Washington will care much less about London than it did before because our value to the U.S. was as a bridge to the EU. Now they can just talk directly to Germany and France. <coughs> on the question on the second referendum, there would have to be some version of remain, whatever deal the May deal has become, i.e. the deal proposed by the government, and this is difficult, some version of hard Brexit. You couldn't say we propose no deal because as Dominic Grieve has pointed out, Parliament would then be proposing something which is illegal, right? <laughs> which on the whole Parliament can't do, but say on WTO terms or something of like that. You'd have to have the three, otherwise it's not democratically legitimate, and either you have a single transferable vote or you have, like in the French presidential elections, two rounds. So first in or out, and then, as it were, soft Brexit or hard Brexit, right? It's, it's difficult, but it's doable. Finally, wrapping it all up, languages. It's such a great question because, you know, we talk about unity and diversity in Europe, but there is an ineluctable, unchangeable diversity, which is our diversity of languages. And if you read John Stuart Mill on representative government, you know that that sets a limit to the extent to which we can have a United States of Europe. Because it, the, it sets a limit on to the extent to which you can have a unified public opinion. Because politics is also theater. Politics is also poetry. <coughs> you can't have theater or poetry in a foreign language. So I, myself, in that sense, am a European realist. I think that the, the Europe we have to build, and I passionately believe in the European Union, has to take account of that irreducible reality. So we do have Confucius Institutes. They're called British Institutes and... Uh, Goethe Institutes and what are the French ones called? Yeah. French Institutes and Italian Institutes and so on. And so we're not going to be the United States of Europe. It's not going to be single European institutes. It's going to be some new yet unseen, unidentified flying object, Giuliano Amato said. And, and that's where we need to go. Um, but the one advantage of Brexit may be, as, as someone pointed out, that when Britain has left, then everybody can go on talking English. <laughs> Before um, inviting you to, uh, to thank uh, Timothy uh, most profoundly, can I uh, say that I think it's been a great celebration of the third anniversary of the 1989 uh, Generation Initiative. Uh, Michalis Kotakis uh, made the introduction, and you can, I'm sure, email him at his LSE address. Uh, there's a website for the 1989 Generation Initiative, it is indeed evolving uh, at each stage. I think it's a great initiative which uh, came originally from the students of the European Institute here at the school, inspired uh, by, uh, by Timothy. We've covered many different uh, issues this evening, and I think Timothy has uh, given us uh, coherence to so many different uh, disparate uh, points. So can you join me in giving a very warm thank you to Timothy Gartner? <laughs>